Is it working now? Yes. <laughs> Great. Um, well, good morning, everyone. My name is Pete, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, or you weren't here last week, we have just started a new series in the run-up to Christmas, uh, which we've called Behold Our God, Five Things That God Can't Do. And the point of this series is to show us how massive and amazing and glorious our God is through these five cannots. And then to show us how even more amazing and glorious our God is, that in the incarnate Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, God does the very things he cannot do for us and for our salvation. That's where we're going today. So let me pray for us as we begin. Who can teach the one who knows all things? Oh, come, let us adore him. Lord God, when we consider, as we're about to, everything that you know, we confess that we just do not know enough to even begin to speak or understand you and how massive and amazing and incomparably great you are. But we pray, Lord, that by the help of your spirit, as you speak to us from your word, you would help us to behold you, to see what you're really like, to understand something of that. And we pray that that would move us to worship and adoration. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God can't learn. Now, if those three words had been written on one of my school reports, I don't think I'd have been very keen to take it home to my mum. But when it comes to God, that he cannot learn actually shows us his glory all the more. Let me try and explain what I mean. Um, imagine a water butt, a bit like the one that we've got in our yard out there, if you've seen that one. If I tell you that barrel cannot, cannot hold any more water than it does right now, there could be a few different reasons for that, right? So it might already be, as it is, full. So it's just physically impossible for it to hold any more liquid without it just spilling out over the top. Or... The barrel might be broken or split, so above a certain point, the water just leaks out, so it can't hold any more. Or there might be a blockage in the pipe, preventing any more water getting in. If you think of our minds, a bit like that barrel, and water-like information, there are a lot of reasons why it might be that someone cannot learn. Let me give an example. Last week, Jeanette and I were away at the FIC a leaders' conference, and I had one of those experiences where my brain was just so crammed full that I could not take in any more information. We've all been there, right? When you reach conference capacity, people still talking, you're still trying to listen, but it is just not going in anymore. In another seminar, you can see how this conference went for me, in another seminar, I was feeling a bit hungry, and um, there was a moment where I realized I haven't actually been listening to anything that's been said for the last five minutes. All I've been thinking about is what I'm going to have for lunch. 
A bit like the broken pipe preventing any more information going in. I was distracted. That's why I couldn't learn. But when we say that God can't learn, it's not because of any of those reasons. Instead of that barrel, I want you to imagine a water barrel so big that it already contains all the water in all the world. In that case, it can't hold any more water than it does. Not because of any limitation in its capacity, but because there simply isn't any more water for it to hold. That's what it means to say that God can't learn. Not because of a lack of power on his part, but because he already possesses every single conceivable piece of information that there is. So think about it, right? Learning always implies ignorance that is being overcome. That's what our government's multi-trillion dollar uh, pound budget is all about, right? Overcoming ignorance, teaching us things that we don't know. But God is ignorant of nothing. From all eternity, he is the God of infinite knowledge. As we heard in our call to worship from Psalm 147, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. God can't learn. Now, a few people this week have asked me or, or made comments on the lines. Is it really the case that God cannot do these things? You know, surely it's wrong for us to limit God like that so that he can't do some things like this. Um, and let me say, I don't think I explained it as well as I could have done last Sunday. So please forgive me for that. Let me have another try this morning. To begin with, it's just worth pointing out, Christians have never believed or taught that God can do anything, at least in an absolute sense of that word. And that is because of what God says about himself. So the Bible explicitly says God cannot deny himself, that it is impossible for him to lie, that he cannot be tempted. And we're going to think about that one next week. Notice not just that he does not, though that's wonderfully true, but that he cannot. It's not even possible for him. So sometimes when we say God can't do something, we're just repeating what the Bible explicitly reveals, what God says about himself. At other times, like this morning, it's a necessary consequence of what God does tell us. So, straight up, the Bible does not say explicitly anywhere God can't learn. You won't be able to control, control F those words in the Bible and find them. They're not there. But just like it never says explicitly that God is Trinity, it's a necessary consequence of what the Bible does say. In this case, about God's infinite knowledge. That's why he can't learn. The other reason that it's right for us to say that there are some things God cannot do is because God's attributes can't be separated out in a way that those parts then conflict with each other. We can't do that. So God's righteousness and his power are inseparable. His power is a righteous power. His, his righteousness is a powerful righteousness. And so they can't be pitted against each other as if they conflict in some way. If God were, just imagine for a minute, if God were capable of doing things that expressed his power, but not his righteousness, that would not be a good thing. 
because God would be doing things that were wrong. In the words of the 11th century monk Anselm of Canterbury, he who is capable of things like that, using power but not righteously, is capable of what is not for his good and of what he ought not to do. It would make God less than God if he could do those things. What Anselm was saying is that some abilities are actually imperfections. They detract from us. They make us less. But God is perfect. And so these inabilities, these cannots, are aspects of God's complete perfection. Far from taking away from God's glory, that our God cannot do these things actually shows us his glory all the more that we might worship and adore him. That's what we see in Psalm 139, this breathtaking account of God's comprehensive, complete, infinite, and intimate knowledge. And so that's where we begin, the God of infinite knowledge. Uh, If you've closed your Bible, please open it up again to Psalm 139. Um, I'm just going to read the first few verses again for you. And as I do that, I just want you to think about what God knows and how you feel about that. What God knows and how you feel about that. Let Let me read. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know, when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. The focus of the whole psalm is given to us in verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. And in some ways, it starts off fairly innocuously in verse 2, doesn't it? You know when I sit and when I rise. Well, I might be able to hire a decent private detective to find that out about you. But then it goes even further. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You and I, we, we have some ability to do that, don't we, with people who we know really well. When we know the situation that they're in and we can see their body language and their face expression, we, we can sort of see what they're thinking and how they're responding. But having that perfect perception from afar is deeply intimate knowledge. And having that kind of deeply intimate knowledge of every single of the 8 billion people on the planet is a staggering amount of information. Although maybe that's not beyond the capacities of Google supercomputers, I don't know. But verse 4 puts God's knowledge in a different category altogether. Before a word is on my tongue. You, Lord, know it completely. That is knowledge of a totally different dimension because it's not just knowledge of what is, but also knowledge of what will be. We see that again in verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Do you see that? Even before there was a David to know, while he was yet unformed, God knew everything about him. His whole life was an open book to God before he was a twinkle in his father's eye. So just think about this. 
from the beginning to the end, in the daylight and in the darkness, from the external to the internal, at home and away, in the height and the depths, in public and in private, from the smallest to the biggest, from your past to your future, God knows you completely. He knows all things, possible and actual, past, present, and future. God even knows that which is unknown and unknowable to us. Some people seem, for some reason, to want to debate that point, but it's quite clear if you read the Bible that God does know the future. All through the Old Testament, the birthplace of children, the fates of nations, the decisions even of unbelievers are known and prophesied with total accuracy by the sovereign God. In fact, knowing the future is part of what it means to be God. In Isaiah 41, God basically challenges the idols that Israel are being tempted to worship. He challenges them to a God contest. It's an exam paper where half the questions are about the future. So God says, tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know you are gods. But they're not gods. And so they don't know what's going to happen in the future. Only the true God, the Lord of infinite knowledge, does. What that means for us is that God is not getting to know you. He's not gradually building up a file on you as he discovers more about you throughout your life. Just imagine for a moment if, what life would be like if he were, if God learned I change my mind because of what I learn. So it would be disastrous if the same were true for God, wouldn't it? Because his choice today to love us and commit to us depends on what he knows of us right now. But if that changes, then he might also change his mind. But that's not how it works with God. He already knows all of you, even your future, in intricate detail. He understands our bodies and how they function. If you're in the midst of a, a medical investigation at the moment, there is something wrong with you that no one seems to know what it is. No one can diagnose. God knows what it is. He knit you together. He sees you better than any MRI scanner ever could. He loves you and cares for you. He's able to heal you if that's his will. And if not, he has the power to sustain you and to help you keep going. God knows our quiet sorrows, our secret griefs, the things that we never tell anyone else. Our loving Heavenly Father knows every detail of our lives and everything that we need. And isn't that just a massive comfort for anxious people like us? We do not know the future, and for most of us, that is a source of deep anxiety, not knowing what's coming around the corner. But we know the one who does. And so we can trustingly put our hand in his and walk forward with the one who knows all things and who has promised to meet our every need along the way. According to Psalm 139, you are created intimately 
searched thoroughly, unknown completely. He is the God of infinite knowledge. But it's not just that God knows more than us. God also knows things differently to us. So remember what we saw in Isaiah chapter 40 last week. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him knowledge? Who is it who taught him the right way? Who is it that taught him knowledge? Who showed him the path of understanding? And the answer is no one. But that's different to us, isn't it? Basically, everything that we know, we discover either through observation or education or reasoning or comparison or deduction or experience. We learn. It's good that we do that. But then that means we might be tempted to think of God as just a much bigger version of us, receiving and processing information like we do, just harder, better, faster, stronger. It's not how it works with God. He's not just more than us. He's in a league of his own. So for us, the only way we can know about anything is if it exists. If it doesn't exist, we can't know about it. And then once it exists, we can start to learn, gradually discovering more and more and more. But God knows things even before they exist, independently of their existence. Augustine said, the world could not have been known to us unless it existed. But it could not have existed unless it had been known to God. That's why God can't learn. Because there is no information that he does not already have. He knows all things because he made all things. And so God knows the numbers of the stars And he knows each of those stars by name. He knows every single grain of sand, every speck of dust that floats on a sunbeam. He knows every drop of rain, every wave that breaks on every shore. He knows all the information stored on all the computers in all the world. He knows all that's recorded in all the books, in all the libraries in all the world. He knows what happens in heaven and on earth and everywhere in the universe to every particle and atom, every quark, lepton and boson. He knows where they are every nanosecond of their existence. And he knows it all instantaneously at once. So if you ask God, okay then, God, you know all things. How many grains of sand are there in the universe? He doesn't have to quickly count them like a supercomputer. He doesn't have to pause for a moment to recall the number from the back of his mind as if he knew it once but had forgotten it. He just knows it perfectly, instantly, completely. He doesn't rely on things existing or acting in order to know them. Rather, everything that exists and acts depends on him knowing them. He knows all things in and of and by himself. Now, I told you last week at the beginning of this series that some of the things we think about would make your brain fall over. And that's where David gets to, isn't it, in verses 17 and 18? He's just so overwhelmed 
by the thought of God's infinite knowledge that he just bursts out in praise and adoration to God. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Think about that. Think of all the grains of sand in a teaspoon and then a beach and a desert. And that's just a tiny fraction of everything that God knows. And so like David, when we contemplate the majesty of God's infinite knowledge, well, what have we, what have we left to do except to humbly worship and adore our incomparable God? He is the God of infinite knowledge. And secondly, Jesus is the God of infinite knowledge. So that, that God who knows absolutely everything there is to know was seen in a human being, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who know me, you know this. If you spend about three minutes with me, you will quite quickly discover the limits of my understanding. It's what it's like with most people, isn't it? But after spending three years with Jesus, this is Peter's conclusion about him. Peter says of Jesus, Lord, you know all things. And if you've been with us this year as we've gone through Luke's gospel, we've seen that, haven't we? In the home of Simon the Pharisee, Jesus knows what Simon is thinking to himself. We saw it a few weeks ago when the disciples are arguing to themselves about their own greatness. Jesus knows their thoughts. Jesus is the God of Psalm 139, the God who searches hearts and minds. In Luke's gospel, Jesus knows when Jerusalem will be destroyed. He knows when Peter will deny him, when Judas will betray him. Jesus even knows the exact circumstances of his own death and resurrection. Because Jesus is the God of infinite knowledge. And at the same time, without ceasing to be the God of infinite knowledge, Jesus is also the God who learned. Jesus is the God who learned. This is the wonder of the incarnation. That God does the very things he cannot do for us. It's amazing, isn't it? The incomparable God became comparable to us, like us, one of us. The infinite God became an infant. The eternal God was born. He was a few seconds, minutes old. The God who cannot who, who can measure the whole universe in his kitchen scales, was weighed. The God who can measure the heavens with the span of his hand was held by human hands. And the God who cannot learn, who knows all things, learned. There's so much we don't know about Jesus' infancy, isn't there? But Luke gives us one story from when Jesus was about 12 years old. You might remember, we actually looked at it at Christmas Day last year. 
The story is where Mary and Joseph, they go to Jerusalem for a festival and, and they're walking home and they realize they don't have their son with them. And so they return to Jerusalem and after three days, they eventually find him in the temple listening and asking questions, learning and astounding the teachers with his understanding. And then Luke tells us this in a sort of summary. After this, he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and man. Isn't that amazing? First of all, just think about Jesus' humility in obeying his parents. Like all of us, Mary and Joseph did not have the first clue how to raise a teenage son, let alone a teenage son who was the son of God. Jesus is the God of infinite knowledge. But there's no arrogance, is there? He doesn't belittle or patronize his earthly parents. He lovingly, humbly submits to them, obeys them. But secondly, it's amazing just because of the sheer humanity of Jesus. It is clear, isn't it, when you read through the Gospels that there is something supernatural about Jesus. I think in some ways, for most of us, that's the part we find easiest to accept. But there's also something normal, natural about Jesus. He grew just like other children do. Not only physically in stature, but also, Luke tells us, he grew in wisdom and understanding in knowledge. That Jesus grew is really significant for Luke because he, he mentions it twice at the beginning and end of the stories about Jesus' childhood from temple presentation to temple education. And what Luke is showing us is that the one who is the God of infinite knowledge is also truly, fully, really human. So get this, the God who cannot learn, learned. The word who spoke all things into existence learned to talk. The God who's never needed to be taught anything asked questions of these human teachers in the temple. The God whose understanding is without limit grew in wisdom. I told you it would make your brain fall over. And our task is not so much to try and understand how on earth that could ever work. How can someone who has a real human mind be the God of infinite knowledge? I have absolutely no idea. But I tell you what I do know. Jesus is really amazing. It makes us wonder in adoration at the humility of his humanity. But it still leaves us with a big question, doesn't it? Why? Why would Jesus do that? And to find the answer, we have to go back to Psalm 139. I asked you at the beginning when I read those first few verses of Psalm 139 how you felt. How you feel about this description of God's intimate, infinite knowledge of you. If you're anything like me, that description is both comforting and terrifying. 
And we see both of those responses in David, right? Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's wonderful and comforting because deep down, we all long to be known. We love spending time with people who understand us, who get us. And here is someone who knows us perfectly, even better than we know ourselves. It's wonderful to be known. But it's also kind of terrifying, isn't it? Actually, David knows that. It's so terrifying. In verses 7 to 12, he wonders if there's a place where he can run away. Even with those people who know us, there are still things we keep to ourselves, aren't there? Things we keep secret from others, things that only we know. Because the thought of someone who truly knows absolutely everything about us is terrifying. That's why we filter what we say, why we're guarded in what we share. It's why we wear clothes. It's why we shut the curtains at night, why we delete our browsing history, why we project a persona on on social media. But this is the God to whom all hearts are open all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. God knows everything about you. That means that God knows our sin. The deepest, darkest recesses of your soul, the most depraved thoughts of your mind, the most corrupt desires of your heart, None of it escapes his knowledge. There is no sin in your life that God does not know about. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. But why would someone who knows me like that want anything to do with me? But that's the thing that changes Psalm 139 from terror and despair to comfort and worship. That the same God who knows you completely loves you totally. In the words of the late Tim Keller, to be known but not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, it's what it's like to be loved by God. It's what we need more than anything else. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. So here's what you need to know about all of this. There is nothing you can do, no sin you can commit, no thought that can cross your mind that Jesus does not already know about. Your sin does not surprise him. The you that Jesus died on the cross for is not the sanitized Sunday best version of you that you present to us. 
It's not the filtered Instagram version of you that you project to the world. No, the you that Jesus died for is the real you. Jesus knew what he was getting into when he died on the cross for you. There is nothing that he's going to learn about you that will put him off. Because he knows it all. And still, he loved you and gave himself for you. And the, the judgment that we deserve for our sin fell on Jesus. He took that on himself because he loves us so much. That's what's going on at the end of Psalm 139. Those verses 19 to 22 that we all find a bit uncomfortable. It's because David knows there is a price to be paid for sin. Sin calls for God's righteous judgment. But what David says in those verses, it's not a self-righteous judgmentalism. Because David knows that God not only sees other sin, he also sees his own sin. And so he prays, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Again, on one level, that's a terrifying thing to pray, isn't it? Most of the time, I would much rather remain secret than searched. But that's just the thing, isn't it? Hiding in secret, it's not an option with the God of infinite knowledge. It can't be done. Some of us pretend like it can be. We think that like little children playing hide and seek, if we can't see God, then he can't see us. But the truth is, nothing is hidden from his sight. And one day he will bring all of it into judgment. How much better to bring it to the God who already knows? How much better to today seek his forgiveness? Like the woman at the well, to experience the joyful relief of being loved by the God who can tell you everything you ever did. See, knowing Jesus means that we can pray along with David. Because you can know for certain that the God who knows your sin, the God who knows all the offensive ways in you, loves you. So much that Jesus came and learned and died for you. And you can know that he will lead you in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We, we praise you and worship you that you are the God of infinite knowledge who knows everything about us. And Lord, we praise you even more for how staggering it is that even though you know everything about us, still you love us. Thank you that you love us so much that Jesus died for us and we pray that that would liberate us from trying to hide us in before you that it would humble us out of our self-righteousness, that it would fortify us for life in this world, knowing that we don't know anything really 
but you do. And we can trust you. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.